As we're studying this morning the death of Jesus on the cross, He was a sinless man, a perfect man. As we studied last week in uh, the dream of Pilate's wife, Jesus was utterly unworthy of death. His death was not the result of some weapon of war. It was not the result of a gunshot or a, you know, a sword being thrust through him. Rather, it was a long, drawn-out, six-hour at least, torturous event where he hung and he died for our sins. And today I want to answer the question, why? We see that Jesus asked the same question just before he died. To his father, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And today, before we leave this place, I pray that there is not a question left in our mind as to the answer, why? Why did Jesus suffer like he did? Why did he have to suffer like he did? Why did he hang there alone in darkness? Why was he forsaken of the Father? Verse 45 tells us that darkness was over all the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. They counted time from 6 a.m., which was when the sun came up. Quite honestly, sort of it makes more sense. It's kind of a better time to you know start your counting is when the sun comes up. But they didn't use the same method of counting the hours of the day we do now. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour is from noon to 3 p.m. In the brightest time of the day, darkness was all over the land. I wonder how dark it was. I just know it was so dark. It was supernatural dark. It was unusual dark. And it shows us that God had removed himself. I want you to think for a moment of what is darkness. Darkness is really the absence of light. It's, you know, sometimes we think of light versus darkness, but there's really no match. It's not a, it's, if you have a room that you have a candle burning in, it's not as if somehow you can shove more darkness in there and eventually make the candle disappear. Light is so much more powerful than darkness. You can take a dark room that has no light at all, that is so dark, like a cave, for example, that you cannot even see your own hand literally right in front of your face. I've been in a cave before where it was that dark. You can't see your hand. The reason there's no light. But you could light a candle around the corner in that cave, and it will put off enough light in the entire place for you to see. This is the power of light over darkness. And so darkness is ultimately the absence of light. And that's what we see happening here as Jesus is dying. It's as if God removed himself from the situation and let darkness just be. Jesus is here in the absolute darkest and most difficult time of his entire life. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have I gone through this? This morning, if we will truly meditate on the things that I'm about to say, I promise you that it is life-changing. It 
changes your perspective. It changes things when we meditate on these things. One of the major reasons is because if you want to know how much God loves you, if you want to measure it, if there was such a way to measure it, one of the ways is by looking at how much he was willing to suffer for you. The depth to which he was willing to go, if we could even really measure that, as we will find this morning, I don't have the words. But if you want to know if God loves you, you can certainly measure it to a great degree by looking at what Jesus endured at the cross. It was horrifying. It was beyond words. I had the idea as I was studying this week of trying to either purchase, you know, several hundred uh, bookmarkers that were just rulers. I looked at maybe trying to print them. It didn't end up happening, obviously, but I was going to hand them all out this morning as a visual for you to be reminded that you can measure how much God loves you if you will take the time to meditate and think about what he was willing to endure for you. We see that in Jesus at the cross. Today I want to set out to answer the question of why. And I want to accomplish that by looking at three more specific questions. First, what did he suffer? What was it that Christ suffered? Secondly, why did he suffer? And third, what became of it? What was the result of our Lord's suffering? So number one this morning, the first thing I want us to see is that we do in fact know what our Lord suffered. It is a fact. God had forsaken him. It's interesting that when Jesus cries out, he does not cry out, why has Peter forsaken me? Why have my disciples, even my own disciples, why have they left me here alone? He doesn't cry out, why are these same people that I healed and took care of, why have they turned against me? He says no such thing. He does not say, why do these religious leaders falsely accuse me of things I've never done? He says not a word about it. But what tortures him the most is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would you agree with me that as torturous as physical pain can be, as horrible as going through very difficult life situations can be. Nothing's worse than feeling like you're doing it all alone. It's amazing the things we're able to push ourselves through as human beings when there's some type of concept that somebody's going with this through me, going through this with me. It's amazing the pain we're able to push ourselves through and we know I'm not in this thing alone. Somebody has got my back, and somebody is going to help me through this, and we're not going down because we're fighting through this thing together. But when a person feels completely and totally abandoned by all people and all alone, that is a much worse horror than the pain itself that they are enduring. We see that Jesus endured it all. Pain beyond our ability to explain. Physical pain. 
the abandonment of friends, the abandonment of, of family, and in this moment of time, even God the Father himself has removed himself and is allowing the wrath of God and all of the penalty and payment of mankind's sin to be bore on the shoulder of his Son all alone. This is what Jesus suffered. It's exactly what he experienced in the darkest moment of his life. The desertion was real. It was not some failure of faith on his part. It was real. Jesus was not mistaken. It was not some delusion of the last few moments of his life where he was just in such pain that he was delusional. This, this was real. This was what he experienced. It was a very real absence which Jesus mourned. And this forsaking was terrible beyond our ability to really understand it. Uh, I always find myself when I'm teaching on Jesus, when I'm teaching on the crucifixion, it's impossible for me to do it justice. I, like, I know I must teach on these things, but I feel that I cannot because I could never properly do it. I can't express it enough. I can't teach it enough. I can't paint the picture clear enough. And, and there's this, this guilty feeling in my soul that I'm walking away from a subject that we've barely even scratched. I cannot overexpress the torment the pain that Jesus went through. And in the very last moments of his life, the thing he says about it all, the worst of it all, is that he is there forsaken by God. We can't really relate and we can't understand. I'm going to do my best to help you to a degree understand what Jesus was going through. And again, barely scratch the surface. Those of us who have truly been born again. Those of us who have truly been saved. Meaning that the Holy Spirit now indwells us. And we begin the process of learning to hear the voice of God. And to be led by the Spirit of God. We know what it was like. To be dead and blind to the things of God. We know what it was like. We can look back to a time in our life when we could not hear the voice of God. We had no consciousness of His nearness. In our foolishness, we even thought, maybe there is no God. I can't touch Him. I can't feel Him. I can't see Him. There's no sense of his reality near. There's nothing you can reach out and touch. There's no voice in the inner spirit you can hear leading you along. We can relate to that, those of us who have truly been born again. If you're not born again, that's all you've ever known, and you think it's normal. But if you've been born again, awakened to the things of God, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus never lived that moment in all of his life. He was the sinless man. He, he lived in 
perfect communion with God. From the time he was small, as a 12-year-old boy, he's in the temple expanding on the things of God, astounding the wise with his knowledge of God because he lived in perfect communion with his father. And it was not until this moment, the very last of his life, that he ever experienced what it was like to not be able to reach and touch God, to not hear his voice, to feel as if God was nowhere to be found. It's in that moment, and in that moment only, he experiences that. How could we ever relate? We cannot. But that he suffered it. We know it to be a fact. We know what our Lord suffered. Which leads us to the question, why did he suffer? We also know why our Lord suffered. We have the answer to that. Note carefully his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I'm about to share with you, I did not come to see until years into my faith. I had always thought of this question in the context of me, right? I try to, re- we try to relate to the Word of God. I thought of it in the context of me when I have asked similar things. Now, we've never been forsaken like the Lord Jesus, and the Word of God promises that God will never leave us or forsake us, so really, we've never been forsaken. But, in our ignorance, would you agree, there are times in our lives we go through things and we think to ourselves, God, why would you allow this to happen? You are all-powerful, and if you're good, why would you allow this to happen? Maybe I'm the only person that's ever asked a question like that or thought a question like that, but I doubt it. And I used to see Jesus' cry here in that same context. But I pray this morning, through the help of the Holy Spirit, that we'll all come to see this was not the cry of some helpless, confused, wounded individual not real sure what he believed about God. This is something entirely different. What I want you to see that this cry, this prayer if we call it, is literally the cry of a godly soul who has his faith firmly established in his God. The cry is taken from the very Bible itself. Look with me at Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Did you know that when Jesus made this cry towards the heavens, he was literally quoting the very word of God itself? That as he hung there, 
dying for you and dying for me in the darkest moment of his life when it felt as if God was nowhere to be and darkness was closing in, our Savior's mind was firmly established on the Word of God and he went to that one verse that he could find that he most identified with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he has literally quoting the Word of God in the most difficult moment of his life, finding strength from the very Word of the same God that he has a question for. Note that his address is to God, but not against God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see true sonship in view here. First of all, he says, my God. Two times. Yeah, I'm going through darkness. And this is the most horroring thing that I could ever endure. But here's one thing I know. He is still my God. He is mine I am his. He says it twice. This is, this is no cry of confusion about who he is. He knows that no matter what he's going through, he is exactly who he always has been. The son of God. And God is his God. And he is God's. And then note the emphasis on the word God. Eli, Eli. God. No matter what he's going through, no matter the pain, no matter the not even being able to fully maybe comprehend it all in his humanity, here's one thing he knows. He's still God Almighty. He is God above it all. He is the creator of it all. He is the one to whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He is the one and only Almighty God. And through this pain and through this sorrow and through this darkness, there's one thing that he is not confused about at all. And that is that God is still God and that he is God's son. This is not some cry of defeat. This is not some cry of awful confusion. But rather a declaration. So why then the question, why? It wasn't because Jesus didn't know. Jesus had told his disciples repeatedly why this needed to happen. Literally, hours before, like the night before, Jesus is teaching his disciples that this has to happen and that he has to go to the Father so that the Holy Spirit might come. He spends literally a couple hours teaching his disciples the very reason this has to happen. And when his disciples are trying to talk him out of it, he's telling, basically he tells Peter, right, get behind me, Satan, get behind me. In other words, this is the will of God. This is going to happen. Nobody's going to stop it, and it has to happen. He knew why. So then, why does he cry out, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to submit to you, and I want to be cautious in this point. I do not want to take this thought and run with it any further than is, than is right to do so. 
But I'm going to submit to you the reason that Jesus asked the question why was to push himself forward. He knew the answer. And the answer would push him onward. He knew the reason why. In fact, the Word of God tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And as Jesus thought on the why will I push myself through this, why not just call, as the Bible said he could have, 10,000 legions of angels? Why not put an end to this? Why would I keep going forward through this pain and this sorrow? It was the answer to that why that made him say, I will not stop. I will not give up. I will not come down off of this cross. I will not call angels to my rescue. But I will push myself through. It was the answer to the why. And I believe Jesus in speaking that, why hast thou forsaken me? It was the answer to it that pushed him forward. Well, what was the answer? In the most simple form, the answer is this, for our sake. That was the answer. For our sake, that was the why. We were the joy that was set before him. Look what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the why for you. Why did he hang there? Why did he suffer? Why was he left in darkness? Why did he have to go it alone? Why the such horrendous treatment? For your sake. Now I'm going to expand on that. I want to explain what does that mean that he did it for our sake. I'm going to expand on that. But for, uh, get, get that simple truth settled in the depth of your soul. The answer to why is you. Your why. You are why. I want to say again, when we see the, the depth to which he was willing to descend, the pain to which he was willing to suffer, only then can we ever really begin to see how much he loves us. It was for our sake. Sin was laid on him. He was treated as if he was guilty, though he had never personally sinned. And now the horror of the rebellion of all mankind was laid upon his shoulders and he paid for our sin. This is the why God left him there to die. That why is the silver lining in the dark cloud. And I will argue that our Lord looked at it intentionally. This is why. I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us. And so I'm always cautious to say things, but I'll tell you what I believe, because God is all-knowing. I don't know for a fact that when Jesus was on the cross, that he specifically by name thought of Joplin Emerson. I don't know that. But I do know that it's true that as he sat there and asked the question, why am I enduring this? That his mind did go to people just like me that would be hopelessly lost. 
broken beyond repair. In desperate need of a miracle. And it's as if he looked beyond the pain and saw me in my time of need and said, that's why. And his love for me, it pushed him forward. He said, I will not quit. I will not come down off of this cross. And I will endure all the torture that hell has to bring my way. So that the wrath of God might be satisfied. You are the why. It was for our sakes. (sighs) For our sakes. When Jesus thought of you, he pressed onward with the divine will of God for our sakes. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus was doing the will of God. It was ultimately the will of God that he was out to fulfill, but do not miss it. It was the will of God that he die for our sakes. Because God loves us. You've never been loved more by the Son of God than when He gave His life for you. You've never been loved by God the Father more than when God gave His Son for you. Love is why this happened. It was for our sakes. To pay our debt. I, I, I think there's some biblical merit to the term that our debt has been canceled. Um, and so you'll never hear me get on a bandwagon and say, don't say that, don't say that. But... Technically, our debt wasn't canceled, it was paid. It it was paid in full. It's not as if God decided, well, I won't make there be a penalty. It's not as if God said, well, there's a debt that needs paid, and I'm just going to decide nobody has to pay it. No, the debt was paid. Jesus paid the debt for our sakes. Your debt And my debt that was owed to God, the penalty of our crimes and our anarchy against God, Jesus took it all and he paid the bill in full so that God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous God. God can look at you and he can look at me and he can righteously say, you can go free. Why? Because your debt has been paid. Your death has happened in Christ Jesus. All that needed to happen, it happened in Him and in Him alone. Jesus paid the debt for our sakes, to die our death, to atone for our wickedness, to open the door for us to be reconciled to God, to save us from hell, to give us new life. This is the great answer of the why of the cross. He bore the sinner's sin He had to be treated, therefore, as though he were a sinner. Though a sinner, he never could be. For our sakes, he stood in our stead. Number three this morning. We know the outcome of our Lord's suffering. So what came of it? He did suffer. We know that he suffered. 
We know what he suffered, and we know why he suffered, but what came of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is the outcome of this suffering? What was the reason for it? In our text, it just simply says that he cried out with a loud voice. It doesn't tell us what he said in Matthew, but John tells us what he said right before he died. In the Greek, it was one word. And in English, it's translated, it is finished. That's what he cried out before he bowed and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. That is the outcome of his suffering. But what is it? What is finished? And this morning, may God give us great comfort as we consider what is finished. I will say it now and I'll probably say it again. We have to understand that these things are settled facts. Jesus did not say it will be finished. But rather, it is. It's finished. It's done. It's past tense. We have to understand it is final and it is complete. When Jesus said it is finished, what was he speaking of? I would say, first of all, that obedience to God had been perfected. Jesus, in this case, finished a life of perfect obedience to God in the face of every possible hurdle a man could ever have to come against in the face of death, in the face of rejection, in the face of being abandoned, in the face of public humiliation, in the face of it all. He never wavered and showed us what perfect obedience to the will of God looked like. Why did it matter? Because he was to be the lamb that was slain for us. He had to be perfect, he had to be spotless, and he had to be without blemish. And at that last moment as he became or finished that work of being the Lamb of God, he cries out, it is finished. And he had showed perfect obedience as the spotless Lamb of God in all things. Consequently, the next thing that is finished is the law has been satisfied. Brothers and sisters, we have to see how marvelously in Jesus Christ... God has vindicated himself. God is just. He is just in setting us free. God is not some God that sits on a bench and just decides, well, I kind of love these few more than the others, and so I'm going to take their sins and just look the other way. No, God is just in vindicating us. Because his son has paid the full price of our vindication. Understanding this as settled fact is one of the most important pieces to living your life victoriously as a Christian. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul builds this argument where here's what he says. So if God is the judge... And he's the creator of the law. And he's the one who has set us free. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who who can say anything? What lawyer can step up to the bench 
What demon in hell or even Satan himself can come to the courtroom of God and say, this person deserves death? When our judge has already said, not only do I have I agreed, but the death has been paid, it's done in full. And so therefore, nobody can bring any charge against us. We stand justified and right in the sight of God because the righteousness of Christ was given to us and our sinfulness was placed on his shoulders and dealt with in the cross. And when Jesus said, it is finished, brothers and sisters, thank God, it is finished. It takes discipline as a Christian to throw ourselves upon the cross at all times. You will find as a Christian that even at times you will get weak and you will fail God and you will sin. That's the biblical word for it. You will find at times you sin as a Christian. If you're here this morning you think, no, that's not true. I don't. You're guilty of the sin of pride and ignorance right now. And you don't even know. But thankfully for you, the blood of Christ is applied to God's sons and daughters. And when we understand that, when you, when, you, when you meditate on these things and you get your eyes on the magnificent cost that was paid at the cross, trust me, folks, it'll make you want to do anything but run out there and sin. But you will find that even the best of us, when we try to live our lives for God, there are times and there are moments when we just don't get it right, when we don't yield to the Spirit. When instead, we grieve the Spirit. We act in the flesh. It's in those moments that we must know it is finished. And I've got to go to God and I've just got to thank God for the blood. God, I am. I truly am. I'm sorry that I acted that way. God, I'm sorry that I got out in the flesh and I sinned against you and my fellow man. But Lord, I know I can come boldly before the throne of grace and find help in my time of need because of Jesus, because of the blood. I don't have to earn it. I don't, there's nothing I have to do to make it happen. I don't have to atone for it myself by beating myself up the next two weeks. I don't have to get four church services under my belt before I can come back to God. I don't have to memorize X amount of verses before I can come back to God. It is Finished. It's done. The debt is paid in full. And I can approach my God, my God, at any time and any place because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is finished, brothers and sisters. Jesus also established himself as our divine leader forevermore. He was our leader in suffering. Paul prayed that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We suffer sometimes as Christians. It's part of living in a fallen world and he is our leader. There's nobody that we can look to better in our time of suffering than the Lord Jesus Christ. He showed us how to do it, folks. He showed us that in that time, you take your mind to the word of God. When you feel like you're all alone, Jesus, Jesus had been abandoned there for that very brief period of time. God left him there alone. God promised us he would never leave us alone or forsake us. 
But in our ignorance and in our struggles, if we're honest, many of us, at least Pastor Joplin Emerson, sometimes it feels that way. It feels like I'm all alone, even though I know I'm not. May we follow the example of our divine leader and know it's in those moments, rather than turn away and run away, we've got to press ourselves into the Word of God. We've got to find some scripture. We've got to go to the Word of God, and we've got to meditate on it. And if we've got to speak it out loud, then speak it out loud. When you don't feel like praying, pray all the more. When you're there feeling like, oh, I'm all abandoned, then lift a voice to heaven and know that somehow God still hears it. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The statement in and of itself insinuates he knew that God could still hear. He's our leader and he's established ourselves as our divine leader. There's nothing that we will ever experience that Jesus cannot in one way or another sympathize with us about. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. It is finished. The veil has been torn. The Bible records for us that as Jesus was saying these things, that the veil was torn. And it's important to know what that means. In, the, in that period of time, for a very brief period of time of human history, God chose to manifest himself like his power here on earth. In the Ark of the Covenant, it was a box that housed some very important things like the Ten Commandments um, and a handful of other things. And if you'll study the Old Testament, at times they would even take the ark with them into war. It was a symbol of God's power. It was really where God chose His manifest presence. But the Ark of the Covenant was inside of the tabernacle in what was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies... Where the presence of God was, you couldn't go. Even the priests couldn't go. Only the high priest, one time a year, could go behind that veil. And he'd go in for just a little bit of time, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the atonement of all of the sins of the people for the year, and he'd work himself right back out. And it was very symbolic of the reality man could not approach God. That God was unapproachable. That our sins kept us from being able to approach God. But as Jesus cries out these final words, we learn that the veil was supernaturally torn from the top all the way down to the bottom, showing us that the door had been opened up forever for all people of all time to come and approach God through Jesus Christ. It's finished. This is the result of our Lord's suffering. I want to conclude with three action points. What should our response be? First of all, to you and I that are believers, we need to lean hard on Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we need to throw ourselves upon Him. There is nothing more exhausting in your Christian life than trying to be righteous, trying to do the right thing, trying to be a Christian man, trying to be a Christian woman in and of your own strength. There's nothing worse than trying to feel worthy to come to God in prayer by somehow trying to earn it through your great Christian living. 
It's exhausting. It's tedious. It's never enough. Instead, when we look at the degree to which he suffered, let us quit trying to add something to it. Instead, let's just, out of love for him, out of deep appreciation of what he was willing to endure for our sakes, let us throw our faith and our trust upon him and him only. Let us lean on him harder than we have ever leaned. Let us believe on him with a greater sense of sincerity than we've ever believed. Number two, the second action item I see this morning that we need to take is this. If it ever seems as though the Lord is nowhere to be found, if it ever seems as though you're praying to the wall and your prayers aren't even making it out, out the door, you remember the example of your Lord. And by faith, you get to the Word of God. You meditate on the Word of God. You speak the Word of God. When it seems as if God is not hearing, by faith, you pray all the more. Let the Lord be your example to say, I will not turn. I will not give up. And may there be a why in your life that pushes you forward. A why. Why must I keep going? Why must I stay faithful? I think for all of us the greatest answer is because Jesus did it for me. Don't give up. He never did. And the final action point this morning. We must learn to abhor the sin. To hate the sin which brought such agony upon our Lord. We must see the evilness of sin when we look at the horror to which he suffered and understand that sin has no place in the life of a believer. We cannot toy with it. We cannot play with it. It is not a, a toy to be played around with. It is ultimately meant to destroy. It is meant to separate us from God. And we need a renewed sense of, of hatred for sin and what it does to mankind, what it does to us, what, what, what the intention of it is. And there must be a sense of, I want, I, I don't want to, if this is sin, I don't want to walk the line. I don't want to be so close that I'm not sure if I'm in or I'm out. But if there is a, the Bible teaches to abstain from the very appearance of evil. Not just to abstain from evil, but if it even appears like it might be, to abstain from it. Why? We see the horror of sin when we really look to the cross and see what our Savior, what our Lord died for and the way that He died for us. This morning, if you're here and you're not saved, if you're here and you feel like there's no way God could ever save a sinner like me, I've been too much, I've done too much, I'm a terrible person, whatever it might be, I plead with you, I urge you, 
I command you, whatever the strongest word that could be used here, stop looking at you and all that you've done. Start looking at Jesus and all that he's done. I mean it. Focus. Think for a moment. Let your mind go there. Let your heart go there. Focus on the agony that he endured. And now ask yourself, is that not worth my Would he really endure what he endured if he wasn't capable of saving me? When you get your eyes on Jesus, and you get your eyes on the cross, and may the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see that everything that you need, it is.